This is day four of this June 2022 seven-day session. We're going to switch horses here uh, now and uh, move on to a book, one of the very earliest um, books on Zen practice translated into English. It's called The Practice of Zen by C.C. Chang. The uh, publication date here is uh, 1959. This places it seven years before The Three Pillars of Zen was published first. This was one of the only three or four uh, Zen texts in English that were suitable for Sashin, that is their practice pure practice-based. And uh, so this was one of only three or four that Roshi Kaplow had available to use in Teisho and comment on uh, for years. As a result, this text, like the other couple, uh, are ones that we heard over and over and over again uh, in the 1970s. Uh, and as a result of that, uh, has this this material has, has seeped um, quite deeply uh, into the mind, my mind. Uh, so maybe there's a little uh, bit of nostalgia or attachment, um, but I think it's it's very powerful material. It's really looking at uh, Zen. Zen exertion from the inside, and particularly about uh, koan practice, because there's a lot he says about questioning, which is the key to uh, working on a koan. So this particular segment uh, is called Discourses of Master Poshan. And uh, try as I might, I couldn't find a date of this Poshan, or his dates, where he, when he lived. Uh, uh, another one in this section was was in the 1200s, though. So, yeah, let's say 1200, 1300, 1400. <clears throat> so here he begins. When working on Zen, the important thing is to generate the Yi Chin, doubt sensation. What is this doubt sensation? Now, doubt, let's be clear, doubt doesn't mean skepticism. You know, like, what? I don't, I don't believe that. How, how could that be? It means uh, questioning. Uh, for some reason, this is the Zen use of, of the word, well, in this context, it's the Zen use of the word. Um, so it's the it's means perplexity or questioning or wondering. But I'll let him here do the talking. What is this doubt sensation? For instance, where did I come from before my birth? And where shall I go after my death? 
since one does not know the answer to either question, a strong feeling of doubt arises in the, in the mind. Take hold of this doubt mass and keep it there all the time until you can neither drive it away nor put it down even if you wanted to. Then you will suddenly you will discover that the doubt mass has been crushed, that you have broken it into pieces. The masters of old said, the greater the doubt, the greater the awakening, the smaller the doubt, the smaller the awakening, no doubt, no awakening. So just a word about the the premise of koans as the meditation device. Um, the 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 presupposition is that to be human means to wonder uh, at times, to wonder about one's own life and death and existence, fundamental questions. I think this wondering is strongest in adolescence, from what I can tell, from what I can remember. Teenagers are so often beset with questions about who they are and what they might be and uh, why this and what's going on. Um, And I think as we mature, as we move on into full adulthood, these questions in most people get shoved aside or shoved under uh, with the pressures of uh, work, uh, finances, relationships, marriage, and so forth. And for, I think, a lot of people, uh, it isn't till they face a crisis in their 20s or 30s or 40s or later that these, these kind of questions might then reemerge. A loss, a loss of someone close to them, or, or a job, or something. Loss of a job um, can provoke the questioning again. But most people manage to hobble along through their lives with these questions unaddressed in any kind of conscious, uh, active, vigorous way. Well, the 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 koan uh, is a way to pull together this this kind of diffuse on and off occasional questioning to pull it all together to give it a focus uh, so it can really really work as far as changing revealing the way things are the best uh, best physical Example or analogy I can think of is a it's like a magnifying glass. That uh, the rays of the sun, sunlight, sunlight is is uh, you know, warm enough, uh, but diffuse uh, until you put a magnifying glass under the sun, and then you can start a fire.
because it focuses the rays of the sun. He continues, when working on Zen, the worst thing is to become attached to quietness because this will unknowingly cause you to be engrossed in dead stillness. Then you will develop an inordinate fondness for quietness and at the same time an aversion for activity of any kind. Once those who have lived amidst the noise and restlessness of worldly affairs experience the joy of quietness, they become captivated by its honey-sweet taste, craving it like an exhausted traveler who seeks a peaceful den in which to slumber. This is always, every sashin, every seven-day sashin, this is the danger of the middle third of sashin especially, where one has left the worldly commotion and uh, activities of our daily lives, which this Poshan in the 13th century or whatever could not have even imagined the level of, of activity of the 21st century, especially with, with all the digital devices that that uh, keep us preoccupied. I once uh, read, I don't know, I'll just pass it along because it was, I think it was in a decent source anyway, that, that, uh, that in a single New York Times, maybe let's call it a Sunday, Give me the benefit of the doubt. Single issue of the Sunday New York Times. There's more information there than people of the 13th century encountered in their whole lifetime. So we are continuously churning the mind with with most of us uh, most most i think in the sangha don't have uh, exceedingly uh, simple jobs but those those who do <laughs> you can say from a zen perspective are lucky uh, but even those who do uh, almost surely have digital devices that can really stir things up. And so we, we come in here uh, from all of this life of the mind active and, uh, and it is such a relief. It can be. And the mind settles, thoughts settle the first two or three days. And then we enter this uh, kind of 
well, he says quietude. And then the, the challenge is to not settle into that and just leave it at that. It helps uh, that the, the mind does get more concentrated by day four, more so on five, generally speaking. And it's, it can be luscious. He said this honey-sweet taste of quietness. But it's nothing like what that can lead to the bright awareness, the breakthroughs that can come. This phrase, uh, an aversion for activity of any kind, sometimes, not often, but sometimes it takes the form of someone in Sashin who uh, doesn't want to get up for Kinheen. But we ask them to get up uh, because we don't want people getting attached to stillness, to non-activity. We want to make this practice work. Skinin is a, a chance to practice this, the, whatever pra- our practice is, to practice it while moving. Is it? I think often when someone doesn't want to get up for keening, there's a clinging, clinging desperately to that state, which is the last thing we want to do. We don't want to try to cling to any state that we encounter in, in our sitting. He continues. When working on Zen, one does not see the sky when he lifts his head, nor the earth when he lowers it. To him, a mountain is not a mountain, and water is not water. While walking or sitting, he is not aware of doing so. Though among a hundred thousand people, he sees no one. Without and within his body and mind, nothing exists but the burden of his doubt sensation, the questioning. So this, if you think this is not mindfulness, you're right. This is not mindfulness. In mindfulness, we want to be mindful, aware, noticing things. Uh, this is a, a, uh, a deep state, though, deep state of concentration. This is a a state of no-mindedness, very different from mindfulness. In uh, when the Buddha came to his uh, after his awakening, and then he went to Deer Park and gave his uh, Four Noble Truths. The fourth of the Four Noble Truths is the Noble Eightfold Path. Right understanding, right thought, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. Those last two, right mindfulness and right concentration. Notice the distinction. 
it may be, and I can't speak with authority uh, about about this, but it, it, it seems that uh, what what Zen specializes in, as far as the awakening experience, is right concentration. We need mindfulness uh, to notice when the mind has wandered. That's that's mindfulness. That's noticing. That's mindfulness. So we have to. It's part of Zen meditation is mindfulness. But it can. In, in our efforts to hold the mind firmly on the object, uh, object of concentration, the koan of the breath, uh, one develops concentration to the point that one can penetrate, see into this discursive consciousness, see through it beyond and experience what we call awakening. This is what is, uh, what is one of the things that draws me back to this text is that here, this Poshan, he's, this is someone who's sharing deep experience with meditation, advanced states of meditation. I think it would not serve anyone to make, make this kind of, of uh, absorption, that's what it is, uh, the goal where they are trying to uh, um, even among a hundred thousand people seeing no one it, 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 it may happen I think this is a very a very unusually deep state but uh, well he's just he's just sharing what he's been through and what uh, others some others have been through we could call it a kind of samadhi state. And it's temporary. You don't, after awakening, you don't go through your life uh, not seeing the sky when you lift your head or the earth when you lower it. It opens up, it, it, it opens up into dazzling clarity and awareness. But to get there, one may have to go through this kind of, of stage. He continues, this feeling can be described as, quote, turning the whole world into a muddy vortex. And he asks, what does this mean? It refers to the great truth, which from the very no beginning time has has existed latent and idle. It has never been brought forth. Through our conditioning, uh, we come to see the world as fragmented, as as purely as uh, in the in the lens of differentiation. This is just the normal way of seeing the world, and we have words that correspond to different forms and shapes. Alter, stick window, tree, dog, bird. 
So we have many thousands of names for these different things, and that's how uh, the ordinary person sees only from that perspective, this is the perspective of differentiation. But that's just half the truth. The other half is non-differentiation, oneness, nothing apart from every other thing. And that's what, that's the realm of this, these states he's describing. This ever turning the whole world into a muddy vortex. And more, more on that a little later. Then he says, therefore, a Zen practitioner should bestir himself to make the heavens spin and the earth and its waters roll. He will benefit greatly from the rolling surges and tossing waves. That's the opposite of sinking into the torpor of of uh, quietness. Uh, a little later, I'm going to skip ahead just momentarily. A little later, uh, he quotes a master, Tian Tung, who said, "The whole universe becomes like becomes like cooked rice. One can dip his nose in the bowl." and eat as much as he likes. Again, this, this complete, um, this realm of non-differentiation, everything as one, one non-separation. There, then this Master Tian Tung says, therefore, if at this stage he cannot do, do this, it is, the, it is as though he were sitting beside a rice basket or floating in the ocean. He can't eat the rice or drink the water. He is hungry and thirsty unto death. Of what use is this? We, are all, we all long for to return to this fundamental unity, non-separation, indivisibility that we were born with, the experience we were born with through, through our development, our child development, we need to uh, develop uh, this, the realm of differentiation, discriminating this from that. But uh, we can reclaim the complement to that, the other, the other side of that, which is this unity. Then he switches here for a moment. One who is truly working on Zen has no time for illusory visions or even for a second thought, not though a sharp knife be pressed against his throat. Illusory visions. Well, you know, most of you know 
sometimes use the word makyo for uh, visual hallucinations, any kind of uh, uh, distorted sense experiences, visual hallucinations, auditory hallucinations, tactile hallucinations. These are things that can arise through deepening meditation. He says there's no time for these things. In other words, not to get distracted by these things. Well, how do you get distracted? How do you not get distracted when you're facing the wall and the wall is full of elephants and tigers? Well, you, you keep your attention riveted on the practice you're working on. You neither try to repel or escape those images, that's a mistake, nor do you uh, engage with them, uh, trying to avoid them, or, or oh, maybe worse of all, uh, creating things out of them. This is all uh, a diversion from the matter, the real, the great matter that we're here for. More seasoned people, practitioners know that uh, you don't have to get rid of them. You don't have to do anything about them. If you keep your attention on the practice, then uh, they're, they're not a problem. It may take getting used to that. It may take some time to learn how to cope with them in that way, which is not coping, just keeping the attention on the practice. But then they just are no longer a problem. It's not that different from thoughts. What are we doing with thoughts? Thoughts keep arising in the mind. Well, we're not trying to repel them, suppress them, escape them, nor are we clinging to them. Neither of those two extremes. We just keep our attention, keep returning our attention to the practice, and then they're not a problem. The thoughts are not a problem. They don't have to be, they don't have to disappear they're just not a problem the hallucinations don't have to disappear but they're not a problem that's well, and it extends to any phenomenon emotions feelings what are the two things we don't want to do we don't want to try to suppress them and we don't want to wallow or cling to them how do you neither suppress them nor cling to them? You know what? Just the practice. Nothing but the practice. And then they will find their way out on their own. It's like ignoring, uh, ignoring a, a nuisance. When I used to tease my sisters, uh, and they go to... Her mother and say, ah, and she would say, just ignore him, just ignore him. And they would do their best. And uh, at first, I just, you know, amped it up. Uh, and but then, yeah, all right, that's not working anymore. Getting no reaction.
and then to continue with this about uh, dealing with uh, what he calls illusory visions. Uh, he says, if one's experience really conforms to the truth, that is, if you are experienced, uh, you realize that there is no object outside of your own mind. Can he find a vision apart from the mind which mirrors it? This is a, a very profound question. Can we find any vision, anything that is apart from the mind? There's no such thing. What, how could that be? What could we possibly see that's apart from the mind? It isn't a function of the mind, of perception. And by the way, it's not just—it's uh, not just, of course, we know that's just uh, sensory uh, illusions that can bedevil us. It's also uh, emotional states that can suddenly ride in like those banditos in the old westerns, uh, the, everything is going fine. We're pretty, pretty concentrated on our practice, and suddenly we're swept away by fill-in-the-blank regret. That's, that was one of my specialties in my early sessions, regret what I had done, what I had said to people, remorse. Anger. Irritability suddenly rising up sometimes even without an object, annoyance. And then the nicer states, euphoria, elation, excitement, restlessness, sluggishness, boredom. They're all states. There's nothing we need to do about them. Same as thoughts. Same as pesky brothers. Just ignore them. We don't, we don't deny that they're there. Yes, they're, they're very much sort of occupying us temporarily, these states of emotions. So we see them but there's nothing we need to try to do about them. They will find their way out. Depression, there's nothing that's permanent. There's no state that's permanent. It'll last a shorter time or a longer time, but it always moves out. Provided, provided we remain concentrated on the practice.
He continues, When working on Zen, one should not worry about not being able to revive after death. He's referring here to uh, awakening. Some people, uh, they hear this, this uh, expression, uh, dying the great death, coming to awakening, and they can imagine that, uh, well, take it too literally. One should not worry about not being able to revive after death. What should, what should worry him is whether he can die out from the state of life. If, if one can really wrap himself up tightly in this doubt sensation, the realm of movement will be vanquished naturally without his making any specific effort to vanquish it, and one's distracted thoughts will be purified spontaneously without effort to purify them. In a holy natural way, one will feel his six senses become spacious and vacuous. Six senses, the five ordinary senses and the sense of thought. When one reaches this state, she will awaken to a mere touch and respond to the slightest call. See, now this you see, is the opposite of this, this state of, of uh, not seeing the sky when you raise your head or the ground when you lower it. That's past. Now, awakening to a mere touch and responding to the slightest call. And this point, uh, one's distracted thoughts will be purified spontaneously without effort to purify them. It's not our job to purify our thoughts, to stop our thoughts, to get rid of our thoughts. That happens on its own. Rather, the thoughts no longer become a problem. As Hakuin says, our thought now being no thought. This is the marvelous thing about Zen practice. We don't need to write up a to-do list about what, what we need to do. We don't need an agenda. We just need to reduce it to the, this, the singular goal of becoming absolutely one with the practice we're working on. Everything flows from that. It happens on its own if we're engaged in that way. When working on Zen, she who works with absorption will feel as if she had lifted a thousand pound load. That's again the doubt sensation that grips one. And even if she wants to put it down, she cannot do so. In ancient times, people could enter into samadhi while tilling the land, picking peaches, or engaging in any business. It was never a matter of sitting idly for prolonged periods, engaged in forcefully suppressing one's thoughts. Does samadhi mean stopping one's thoughts? If so, this is a debased samadhi, not the samadhi of Zen. 
Yeah, I think there is a practice in, um, there's a Hindu practice of suppressing your thoughts. So I think maybe that's what he's referring to here. It's not, not confuse it with that. You know, he, he, this whole this whole chapter practically is about questioning, raising the doubt sensation. Um, but I know from having met with students for many years that uh, for some uh, it just isn't there. It's even I mean, working people working on a koan, the doubt, the questioning isn't there. And uh, I, I always reassure them that, all right, the questioning is ideal. The questioning, the element of questioning is what distinguishes koan practice from non-koan practice. And yet, it, 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 it may take a while to develop it, that questioning. So rather than uh, contrive questioning and get get frustrated and have a kind of artificial questioning, uh, I think it's better just to be concentrated on the koan without questioning, without trying and futility to question. Just concentrate on the koan, the mu, what is this, who am I, and so forth. And then when, when you reach uh, enough intimacy with the practice, the, the, the koan, then, uh, then the questioning, it becomes perplexing. The questioning arises out of that state of oneness, that fusion with the koan. It's almost as good, just that oneness with the koan, even without the questioning. And it can, it can, uh, it can switch very fast. Oneness, oneness, oneness then what is it? Who am I? It takes hold of us. We don't have to artificially try to concoct it. He continues, when working on Zen, the most harmful thing is to rationalize conceptualize or intellectualize the way with one's mind. If he does so, he will never reach the way. Well, this is the, this is the big one. All the conceptualizing that we do that we're not aware of. The longer we practice, the more we discover layers of conceptualizing that was going on all along that we weren't aware of. And then we can, when we, when we notice the, these layers, these successive layers, then we have the freedom to leave them alone, get back to the practice. When working on Zen, one should not just await the coming of enlightenment with an expectant mind. This is like one on a journey who sits idly by the road 
and expects her home to come up to her. She will never arrive home this way. To get there, she must walk home. In other words, it's an active practice. And above all, uh, it's not a practice of uh, waiting expectantly for awakening to arrive. Waiting, waiting, I think, implies a thought. If you're waiting uh, for the sun to rise in the morning, you've got that in your mind. I think in most cases it implies a thought. You're, you're, you're in the future. You're not present. Well, it's, it's easier said than done not to have an expectant mind for someone who is, is a strong aspiration to confirm one's innate awakening, one's, own, one's innate enlightenment. Uh, it's very tantalizing, and it keeps coming up. That's why for so many people it takes so long, because they, they can't get beyond the thought of awakening. But it can be done. Eventually, through this absorption, uh, it dissolves, the thought dissolves, and then one is finally fully present, not looking into the future. Attainment, he continues, attainment of the great enlightenment is like the sudden blossoming of the lotus flower or the sudden awakening of the dreamer. One cannot, by waiting, awaken from a dream, but he does so automatically when the time for sleep is over. Flowers cannot bloom by waiting, but blossom of themselves when the time has come. Likewise, enlightenment is not so attained, but comes on its own when conditions are ripe. Uh, Just again, the whole point of the koan is to shift all of that longing to awaken, to shift it over to the longing to know, to understand the koan. So there's nothing left in the way of thinking about enlightenment. In other words, he says, one should exert all his strength to penetrate into the koan, pressing his mind to the utmost in order to achieve realization. Do not misunderstand what I have said and just wait for awakening to come. In the moment of awakening, the clouds vanish and the clear sky shines vast and empty. Nothing can obscure it. In this moment, Heaven spins and the earth somersaults, an entirely different realm appears. 
entirely different realm that paradoxically is no different. The masters of old said, the way, the Tao, like the great void, is all-inclusive. It lacks nothing, and nothing remains in it. And then Po Shan comments, if one has really attained the state of flexible hollowness, we'll get back to that, he sees no world without and no body or mind within. So flexible hollowness is the best the translator could do for a very elusive um, description of this, uh, this realm of, of uh, freedom, of absorption. Hollowness because edging into the realm of emptiness, non-substantiality. Flexible, well, because it feels completely um, (sighs) flexible, Uh, mutable, mutable, changeable. think the less said about any, the less said about this anymore is, 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 is the best. Okay, our time is up. We'll stop now and recite the four vows. <laughs>